So we look to our Lord now in prayer. And Father, with Good Friday and Easter approaching, we realize that the hinge of history will once again be recalled. The commemoration of Good Friday, the celebration of Easter Sunday, death to resurrection, the great reversal of all time. Leading up to that, Father, we want to prepare our minds and our hearts for what matters most. Too often we pursue things that really, in the big scheme of things, don't matter. But when we start to ask the big questions as to why are we are here, how did this come about, where are things going, and why do the Jews survive to this very day, we are asking critical questions big questions, worldview questions that need answers if we are going to live life well and think accurately. So Father, we don't want to avoid the tough questions of life and we don't want to avoid Jesus, the risen Savior. So if there's any reversals that need to occur in our hearts today, any transformations of life today, we're praying that by the work of the Holy Spirit that that's going to occur. So as we end our series in Esther again, warm our hearts, engage our minds, shape our wills. Once again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading in Writer's Digest an article by Nancy Kress who explains how to use plot reversals to introduce surprising twists if you're putting together a movie script, if you're putting together a book. As Kress says, quote, you want readers to suddenly take, be taken in a direction they had not anticipated. In fact, a writer must do this. The alternative is a story that can be predicted in its entirety after reading the first page. And as I read that, I went back in my mind to a time where I'm standing at a hospital bed when a woman looks up at me and says, what I'm longing for is a reversal. A 180-degree turn. In the plot and the story of your life, what we've got to bear in mind is that the scriptwriter has introduced the ultimate reversal connecting death and resurrection, Good Friday, with Easter Sunday morning. The story we're investigating today is a story of reversals. During World War II, 1945, historians view that as one of the great reversals in the war. Eric Deathlefsen, Hitler's assistant chief of staff, was driving toward Berlin to attend the Führer's night conference. 
Historian tells us he was, he was happy because he noticed that a flight of Luftwaffe planes above him were heading south. At the night debriefing, Deathlefsen heard a Luftwaffe officer tell Hitler about a successful air attack upon, upon the Allied tanks. But that remark was way off the mark. Because the Allied tanks had actually been the buses and trucks of a Nazi army convoy heading south. The Nazis had blown up their own kind. And the writer notes that and says, it was a number of series of events known as reversals that led to the ultimate outcome of that war. Now, we are looking at uh, the threat of a pogrom here, a holocaust in the book of Esther. The thinking person has got to ask in the light of the pogroms throughout history, how do you explain the Jew? And then you go to the cross of Jesus Christ where above his head it read King of the Jews only to find three days later that God the Father has raised the king of the Jews from the dead. And if the evil one couldn't thwart the first coming, then he will try to thwart the second coming. And how does the Jewish story fit in, not only historically, but futuristically as well? That's what we're exploring here. And so what I want to do with you now is to look at three significant effects that we spot here as a result of the reversals that God brings to life. And the first comes out of verse 1 down through verse 15. We're going to have to take a big picture approach here this morning. And we're going to put it like this, number one, that when God creates reversals in trying times, and I pause to say some of us are going through trying times right now, I want you to note with me how he brings about what we'll call real justice to counter evil intentions. Hitler believed in justice, but it was a counterfeit justice. What we've got to figure out is who defines what is just. Even in America today, we hear talk about social justice, but who defines what is just? Who defines justice? What is interesting is that the Hebrew word for justice carries with the same idea as righteousness. So when you pursue what is right, you pursue what is just. And so now this begins to unfold in verse 1 of the ninth chapter that it's the twelfth month. It's the month of Adar, and you say, yeah, I flipped my calendar, it's March, I don't get where Adar is found here, I get that, keep reading. Now the Jew leans forward at this point, you see. This is the Jewish calendar, even though they're in secular Persia. And they take a deep breath, because it's the 13th day, you're in verse 1 with me, it's the 13th day, follow with me in your Bible or your device, it's the 13th day of the same 
when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out. Pause. The Jews in Persia at this point, modern day Iran, the Jews know that even though Haman is dead, the ancient version of Hitler, the edict that he had established for the annihilation of the Jews is still alive. It has not been annulled. And so now they're down to the final day. Will somebody intervene? Will somebody reverse this edict? Who's in charge here? Have you ever noticed that God tends to take your life when it comes to the issues that you face and you're longing for intervention and he waits till the last minute, so it seems? Seems to be the last minute right now. And the king's command and edict were about to be carried out. And you can feel tension throughout the entire Persian Empire. The Jews are wondering, is this the time to say goodbye to our loved ones? When on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, mark this now, the reverse occurred. The reverse occurred. What you and I are exploring, then, is the way in which the sovereign God produces reverses. In Egypt, the Israelites were under intense persecution and oppression, but then God delivers the Israelites from the land of Egypt. The reverse occurs, and they who were experiencing the curse receive the blessing, and those that were producing the curse experience the curse, when they are drowned in the Red Sea. You look furthermore through the course of time, you see that again and again and again, what God does is he creates reversals. If you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's because the Holy Spirit transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You're born again. Look very carefully here. It's at the last minute. When everything seems so hopeless, God produces with this reversal hopefulness. And if you've had bad news delivered to you over the course of these days, you have this tension of hopeless and hopeful back and forth within your own heart, within your own soul. And what you are longing for is what my friend in that hospital articulated. She was longing for a reversal. When all of a sudden, what you and I are told here at this point is that the reverse occurred and the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Which means then, when you look very carefully at what's occurring, we have enemies in the plural, don't we, in verse 1? We have those, plural, in verse 1. In other words, this was an organized effort to annihilate the Jews. This was not merely Haman, one bad dude who was attempting to have the Jews then put to death as a whole. This was an organized attempt at annihilation. It's called a pogrom. Pogroms involve three essential aspects. They are intentional, they are planned, 
and they are organized. It involves a large group of people to be part of the process. Two weeks ago, I, I read a little bit out of the Wall Street Journal, a book article analyzed called The Anatomy of a Genocide by a professor out east, Omar Bato, who ponders why is it that after, after all the advancements in science and technology, are we still dealing with the questions of genocide? He goes, he goes historically on us and notes that the rules of the game changed completely after World War I and the Russian Revolution, where intensified religious and ethnic identification, along with violent swings in political control, led to increased violence. And you ask, why then? Russia occupied a particular area known today as in the Ukraine, more than a year near the end of the war, fighting among the Poles and the Ukrainians left legacies of resentment and competition of atrocities in which there could be no losers. But those enemies, the Poles and the Ukrainians, seemed to agree on just one thing, their view of the Jews, that the Jews were the friends of their enemies. This meant that whenever conflicts arose, the Jewish population was vulnerable. What was the evil one doing at that time then? I would argue that he was prepping for the second coming because in 1948, the Jews received statehood internationally, the land of Israel today. You can't understand the evil one's attempt at annihilation in the late 1930s and 40s without understanding the establishment of Israel as a nation in 1948. It all fits together. If the evil one could not thwart the first coming, then he will try to thwart the second coming, and God overcomes. So the thinking person now here this morning, you're thinkers, you continuously grapple with the question, why the Jew? How on earth can you explain the fact that there's no more Hittites, there's no more Jebusites and all the others of the ites in the Old Testament, but the Jews, they remain. It's because God had chosen them as the means of bringing Messiah into the world to create the great reversal where on Good Friday it would be followed by an Easter Sunday. The reverse occurred in verse 1. We get all that out of one verse. I better get some giddy up and go here. Verse 2. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerash to lay hands on those who sought their harm. You see now the organized pogrom? No one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. And you say, well, Gia, I've read Genesis 12. I get it. I'm glad you get it. But I'll read it again anyways for you, because in chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, God had said, and I will make of you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's global missions right there. Well, in verse 3, all the officials of the provinces and the satraps, see this is how political this is now? And the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. 
for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. Now, up until this point, what you would have probably have thought, prior to a plot reversal, the fear of Haman, the Agagite, would have fallen upon the Jews. But there is a reversal. Now the fear of Mordecai the Jew has fallen upon those who were opposed to the Jews. This is Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. Do you see the great reversals that are happening here and how God is orchestrating his purpose and his plan for his glory? And what he does globally, he can also do personally when he reaches into a soul and by the Holy Spirit's work produces new life in Jesus Christ, him alone. But these people are made of strong stuff in verse 5. The Jews struck all their enemies. And you say, Gary, hang on there. With the sword, killing and destroying them, did as they pleased. But you've got to read on to those who hated them. In other words, God had previously established a means of self-defense to equip those who would face such things as pogroms. And this begins to make sense when justice and mercy are found when a Haman is replaced by Mordecai. And this Esther, she is one strong cup of coffee, I want you to know. She's overseeing this entire thing. And she's making absolutely certain that there is protection and there's justice in the land. Now, if you are raising daughters, consider the name Esther. This is a woman who was skilled. She was beautiful, she was intelligent, and she had a way of making things happen. Hey, have you ever heard of Go to Maia? She was the fourth prime minister of Israel. She's been portrayed as, quote, strong-willed, straight-talking, gray-bund grandma of the Jewish people. She you know, though she was born in the Ukraine, she grew up on Milwaukee's north side. And if you're driving sometime down West Pleasant Street and you get to 227, you're going to see the go to my year's school where she had attended. 1948, four days before the establishment of Israel and statehood, this savvy lady traveled to Amman, Georgia, Jordan, disguised as an Arab woman, get that, for a secret meeting with King Abdullah of Transjordan. Now, he argued with Go to My Ear, and she pushed him not to join the other Arab nations in attacking the Jews. Four days before statehood. Abdullah asked her not to hurry to proclaim Israel as a state. I love how she responded. Quote, we've been waiting for 2,000 years. You call that hurrying? You ever seen any movies about the Olympics? What about the 1972 Summer Olympics? The Munich Massacre, the killing of the Jews. 
She was prime minister at that point and appealed to the world to, quote, save our citizens and condemn the unspeakable criminal acts committed, unquote. But then outraged at the perceived lack of global action, she ordered the Mossad, that's the National Intelligence Agency of Israel, to hunt down and assassinate suspected leaders and operatives of this killing. I think Esther has found some kin with Godemaya. Because now Esther wants to make absolutely certain that she, the strong-willed, straight-talking, gray-bunned grandma of the Jewish people, has provided necessary protection in the pogroms of life. There's justice and there's mercy. Hitler produced counterfeit justice. But the Esters of this world produce real justice, which is a foretaste of the cross of Jesus Christ. But now there's a second, a second effect here I see in these verses. Now you're up to verse 16. We're going to jump ahead to that point that when God creates reversals in trying times, and maybe you're going through that, second of all, I want you to note here how he brings about what I'm going to call lasting memorials to counter human forgetfulness. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, my memory is what I use to forget things with. It's human nature, you see. So what God did was that he established feasts and he established festivals for the Jews to remember and to reenact the times in history when God, such as Passover, delivered the people. Likewise, we commemorate on Good Friday, we celebrate on Easter Sunday, we pull out those cards and we ask, who can I invite, you see? Because I want people who are invited to understand the great reversal of life. How God the Father, three days, appointed the second member of the Trinity who died on the cross with the placard king of the Jews over his head, would raise him from the dead and produce the great reversal. So you're up to verse 20 now, and this has got to be remembered. We need some lasting memorials. That's why we have holidays like Easter. Holiday. Holy day. Same root word. So Mordecai recorded these things, sent letters to all the Jews who were in the province of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar as well as the 15th day of the same year by year. Watch the reversals. 22. As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, plural, more than Haman here. It's a pogrom. And as the month that had been turned for them, see the reversal, from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into holiday. Hit the pause. Now, think about what's happening in that upper room. We'll explore it next week, Monday, Thursday. And there is this sense of boldness where you're wondering what's going to unfold here. Subsequent to that upper room experience, Jesus dies on the cross and the disciples huddle in that upper room and there's sorrow, but then the resurrected Savior appears on the scene and there's joy. There's the great reversal of life. And he can do that for you when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, 
So we pick it up again here in these verses. They should make them days, feasting, gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another, gifts to the poor. There's real justice, social justice on your hands. So what did they do? The Jews accepted what they started to do, what Mordecai had written to them. But I want you to get this. He continuously is called Haman the Agagite. See the great reversal? At the beginning, second in command was Haman the Agagite. In the end, the second in command was Mordecai the Jew. And what is utterly fascinating when you do historical analysis of the Middle East is that opponents are oftentimes, and I read this in the Wall Street Journal, nicknamed Agagites. <laughs> They know not what they saith. Meanwhile, Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. So even go history and the Ukraine in the 1800s, as well as Stalin in the 1900s, and you will see pogrom after pogrom, both covert and overt, unfolding. If he couldn't do it the first time, the first coming, then the evil one tries to thwart the second time, the second coming. You tie all this together historically. You see how this fits together politically. You're at 25. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, Haman. In other words, now we've got a great reverse. So Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. He thought he was blessed. He's getting cursed. Why? Because he opposed the plan of God and tried to annihilate the Jewish population out of which Messiah would come into this world. So you're up to verse, verse 26. And therefore they called these days Purim, which we saw was occurring in the month of March, or at the beginning of March, you see, after the term Pur, and therefore because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter, of what had happened to them, I've got what's here underlined, marked even in yellow, the Jews. How do you explain the existence of the Jews today in any other term? The Jews firmly obligated themselves, but now here's good parenting skills, and their offspring. But I want you to see the evangelistic thrust here, and all who joined them. For as I penned in the, your insert for today, as we jot down thoughts and notes together, when God produces a great reversal among his people, the result is an unmistakable evangelistic impact upon society. Take, for example, the days of hardship experienced by the Jews in the land of Egypt. When God reversed the fortunes of the Jews and graciously led them out of Egypt, we are told that a mixed multitude also went with them. As God blessed the Jews, many among the Gentiles experienced the blessing as well in keeping with Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. The same thing is happening here. And the same thing happened upon the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And on the day of Pentecost, the word went out in various languages. 
and various ethnic groups began to comprehend the significance of what God had done through the one who had the placard over his head, the king of the Jews, the great reversal. So now, what has happened here is that Mordecai and Esther have joined forces to create a memory for the people so they will not forget that God is a specialist when it comes to the reversals, the big reversals of life. So in verse 28, here's the purpose of it all. These days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation. And so parents have the responsibility of maintaining what I will call a Christian memory. When you help a child recite a one of verses, you are helping to maintain a sense of a Christian memory that gets transferred into next generations. Memories are important. Cricket would tell you that. Cricket Carpenter, married to her husband, Kimma, has absolutely no recollection of her 1993 wedding. It's because less than 10 weeks after saying I do, the newlyweds were in a near-fatal car accident that left Cricket in a coma fighting for her life. 21 days later, Cricket awoke with severe amnesia. She didn't recognize anything around her, not even her husband. I lost about a two-year period there, Cricket would tell Oprah Winfrey. I was in diapers. They hand-fed me. They had to teach me how to walk and talk again. But by God's grace, I am here. And Cricket and Kimmer have gone on one program after another, not only nationally but globally, to share their story. It's turned into a movie. Ever hear of the movie The Vow? Rachel McAdams, Channing Tatum, 2012. Well, out of all of this, since Cricket's accident, she still has no memory, the writer tells us, of that two-year period surrounding that time. Now, as far as my personality goes, early on my personality was changed about 30 to 40%. I would say it's much closer to what the old Cricket used to be like. Cricket was her nickname, of course. But get this, and tie it together with this idea of maintaining the memory. And of all places, the Huffington Post writes, since Cricket had no recollection of her first wedding, she and Kimma decided to say their vows for a second time. Her brother would officiate. He's tied with crew. He's ordained. Quote, it was exciting that I actually got to put a memory to marrying Kimmer. And it wasn't just a story, she says. And I was real excited for my dad to walk me down the aisle and wear my wedding dress. That was really important for me so that I knew I was actually married. And now, she says, and now I've got a memory. No matter what trying times you're going through right now, you are part of the culture, you are part of the society of people that long for reversals. 
when God creates reversals in the trying times of our lives, note how he brings about what we'll call lasting memorials to counter human forgetfulness. Are you doing that even in your home life, even in your personal experience? It's wrap-up time, so we've got to get to that, that third and final effect. It comes out of chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, so we'll jump to that. That thirdly, when God creates reversals in trying times, note how he brings about surprising appointments, or if you will, achievements, or if you will, advancements to counter threatening conditions. For in chapter 10, verse 1, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai. Everybody would have thought this would be Haman. But it's Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? Pause. You've got to smile at that point, you see. And the reason you're smiling is because this is not the chronicles of the Scriptures. This is the chronicles of the Medes and Persians. In other words, this reversal is recorded in secular history for the Medes and Persians, modern-day Iran. God has a way of taking the great reversals of time and pressing them into the secular mindset to get them to start thinking serious thoughts such as, why are the Jews even still alive today? What's the purpose of living? How do I connect Good Friday with Easter Sunday? But meanwhile, within their own soul, they continue to long for a sense of a reversal. But in verse 3, Mordecai the Jew doesn't merely say Mordecai, does it? doesn't let go of it. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. He was great among the Jews, popular with the multitude of his brothers, mocked us, for he sought the welfare of his people. Here comes that great Hebrew word and spoke shalom, peace to all his people. Shalom. Shalom means fullness. And what God does with his great reversals, he brings wholeness to people who are experiencing brokenness. Is that you? Meanwhile, as Cress puts it, you want readers to be suddenly taken in a direction they had not anticipated. In fact, the writer must do this. The alternative is a story that can be predicted its entirety after reading the first page. And the secularists thought that the story had been written on Good Friday. And along came Easter Sunday. Let's stand together. First comings and second comings. Past, present, future. How do we explain all this? How do we explain the fact that in all of our services, each of these services, 
there are Messianic Jews present. And their line was not annihilated. You preserve the Jews for the first coming when Jesus, born a Jew, entered into Bethlehem. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? To die on a cross. Where it read king of the Jews. Now we better understand secular history and the pogroms of the Holocaust, of what took place in the Ukraine, of what has taken place in Russia under Stalin. Because of it, the first coming couldn't be thwarted. The evil one will attempt to thwart the second coming. But there's a Jewish story that's tied into this whole mix. And the ultimate reverse, so the cross of Jesus Christ, where the penalty of sin was paid, will lead to that second coming when the presence of sin is ultimately removed and the Armageddon matter is addressed and the King of Kings and Lord of Lords reigns. So thank you, Father, for what we learn from history and what we can gain from this incredible book, the book of Esther. But help us to continue to press this into our everyday experience because we traffic among people that are looking for reversals found in Jesus. And for this we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.